The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David, his fans, music, friendships people have because of David and those cherished memories from friends, colleagues, musicians, actors, producers, broadcasters and many more. I'm your host, Louise Poynton, and I'm delighted to welcome Dale Cunningham. Dale is a lifelong fan who reflects in our conversation on the time as a little boy the impact David had on his life, how he would mimic him and always wanted to be Keith during playtime with friends. He recalls the time his parents separated and the void David unknowingly filled and what he and his music has meant to him and the overwhelming feeling when he saw him standing in front of him at a concert many years later. But we started by talking about his collection of celebrity t-shirts. How are you doing? I'm fine, Dale. How are you? Pretty good. Real good. Nice to see you. Did you have a good birthday recently? Yes. Well, I've worked through it. <laughs> I didn't have the day off, but but yeah, it was pleasant. You know, it was, well, I had enough cake and ice cream for the whole week, so that was good. <laughs> well, that's what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> that was my treat after work every night. Well, you're a huge Batman fan, aren't you? I am. It's amazing I'm not wearing a Batman t-shirt right now, but generally you'll see me in one usually. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. or Fair Fawcett. And yeah. occasionally I'll get the David one out. Years ago, I knew a lady who had a business of making t-shirts. I'd come up with an idea for like a Farrah Fawcett t-shirt usually. Mm. And and then she would kind of take my idea and put it on the screen, kind of rework it. And then we'd print, she'd print me a t-shirt. I did that with uh, David Cassie a few times. You know, I'd get an idea or I got one t-shirt that's got all the, a bunch of album covers on it, you know, and, and she didn't mind doing that. So yeah, the first time I went there, it was with a photo I took, but it was all Farrah Fawcett memorabilia that I had taken a picture of, but she did it, you know, it was a one-off, so she didn't mind. Her machine broke and she went out of business. And so that was kind of sad, but I got all these t-shirts. I got more t-shirts. Bruce, now Bruce, that he's the one who hooked us up here. You might've heard him a little bit ago. Uh, yeah. That's my significant other. We've been together well, 25 years now. We've only lived together. This is our third summer living together. Quite a different experience than, you know, you over there, me here, you know. Sometimes that's a little easier, but yeah. He's not in the room, so I can talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll edit that bit out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he jokes that every time I get a new T-shirt, I have to throw an old, a, a different one away. I have too many. You know, I don't have enough. I don't have enough drawers for him. And, I, and he's got a point because I have drawers, and then I have huge tubs filled with T-shirts as well. But you know, you got winter ones, you got summer ones. So. So, how many David and Partridge family T-shirts do you have? Oh my goodness. Well, I have one. I would say official that I got at the concert that we went to in 2002, mm-hmm. and then I have. Wow. I have one shopping bag, one I bought, you know, on one of those pop-up sites that come up online. And then that the ones I made, one, two, at least four or five, probably, wow. that I had made myself, you know. Yeah. And, and you like some more than others. So I remember the one I did was basically it was the ad for his concert tour program back was in, it was in a comic book. It was in a David Cassie comic book. And I really, I really liked how that looked. I thought, well, let's put that and then we'll put 1972 underneath it. And on the back, I had a, a picture of one of the crowds from one of the concerts. Well, I didn't like the back. I didn't think it was enough. So then I reworked it. She reworked it. We added the album cover of the live album cover and then two photos of the crowd, you know, going crazy. And that turned out much better. So that's my favorite one, even though, well, it has 
it has like stains on it, but I wear it anyway, you know, <laughs> you know, it's wrong. I should take my shirts off before I cook anything with grease, I guess. <laughs> oh God. Yes, absolutely. Always put on your worst t-shirts when you're cooking. Yeah. Something that I don't mind sleeping in, but that's about it. <laughs> Between us, we've all got so much. I mean, it'll be astonishing how much memorabilia people have that they've made oh. themselves. So. Well, you get inspired and you, you you go with it. Shall we talk about David? Yes, yes. And let's go ahead. <laughs> about David. How important has he been to your life? Well, you know, I think from early on, he's certainly, I've always been interested in pop culture and celebrities of pop culture. I mean, I was like, even as a kid, I was always obsessed with the movie magazines and Rona Barrett's and, you know, she had a magazine back then and you know, stuff like that. And I know that pretty much, and someone might say, you know, it started when I was five with Batman, but I don't, I think it actually started with David. He was certainly the first one celebrity to have that effect on me. And like I said, there's certain celebrities like, like David and Farah, and I was a big Michael Jackson fan. I'd like to say like all the icons that I consider the icons of my life have now passed. So, you know, it's kind of bittersweet, but it's, it, you know, it's the, the memories are so strong. I mean, and with David, you can listen to his music anytime you want in the show. If you want to watch the Partridge family, you know, that's, that's always fun too. You know, he was certainly the Partridge family was certainly my first music that was mine. You know, that didn't belong to my parents. You know, prior to that, it was always, you know, like Johnny Cash. Well, not so much Johnny Cash. I think Glenn Campbell was the big one in our family. And Loretta Lynn and, and Dean Martin was real big. So those are what I listened to before I kind of said, well, now I have mine. That would have been the Partridge family. I totally agree with you on that. I've said many times, you know, that when David appeared, he suddenly belonged to us. You know, yeah. our mothers had Frank Sinatra or Elvis or Bobby Darin. And suddenly mm -hmm. here was someone who we could relate to. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he would memorize you. I mean, it mesmerize you, Mes you know, I mean. And again, visually, there was that hair. Vocally, the voice. I mean, it really just it just drew you in from day one. You know, I mean, I always I kind of joke, you know, I was kind of a late bloomer because I didn't discover the Partridge Family until season two. Style Magazine was my first album. So by that point, the music had progressed to the point where, I mean, musically by then, it was the David Cassidy show. Them and the Wrecking Crew and the producers, they all get the credit. But it was, it was really all about David at that point. His voice, anyway, I thought. It was funny because, like I said, the first season, I never even saw the first season until after the show went into syndication so you know i'd get off it was on every day after school you know so i'd race home so i could see these episodes of the part well i wouldn't see all the partridge family but i wanted to see the first season because i had missed it you know so that was quite an interesting experience and the first two albums you know i had later but at the time like i said you know the sound magazine and shopping bad you know by then they had a certain sound you know they had everything perfected not that the first two aren't, but I remember we would visit an aunt of mine and some cousins out of town. They lived in a small town. They ran a, a, a general store and I would play with the kids in the neighborhood there. And they had the original Partridge Family album and they were playing it. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound like the Partridge Family. You know, it was one of the group sounding songs that came on. You know, it really, it didn't have David as the vocal, the ones they were playing, the, the ones that I noticed anyway. And I, I'll be honest, I, I didn't like it. I, I like I I I don't like that, you know. So we just went and played, <laughs> you know. We just put that down and played, you know. And hopefully, I didn't insult them, you know. But <laughs> but at the time, but then you know, I think 
let's see. Well, yeah, my first experience of those songs, because I don't remember hearing any of those at the radio at the time. I probably wasn't listening to the radio that much. It was all about the Partridge Family, the Osmonds, and Jackson 5 for my age group. You know, radio didn't matter to me that much at that point. It wasn't until, well, the Partridge Family at home with their greatest hits. That's when I really got uh, She'd Rather Have the Rain, I'll Meet You Halfway. You know, I, I could feel your heartbeat. Songs like that was the first time I experienced them. And of course, I loved them. I thought they were fantastic. So over time, I, I can't remember when I got the first two albums, but I did learn to grow an appreciation for them that I didn't have early on because, well, you know, they didn't sound like what I thought they should sound like. Wow. But now, point me in the direction of Albuquerque, just the opening of that alone, just, I, I, just, I love it. I'll turn it up on my radio when it comes on. But again, my first year was Sound Magazine. And then, of course, Cheris came out. And that one, yeah, I just played it nonstop. Even listening to it today, you know, song, so my, a lot of sad songs really on it. I think his voice lends itself to those songs very well. The deep tones would dra draw you in. And then he'd have that, you know, they always refer to it as the breathy sound. I've heard mentioned a lot, yeah. you know, and, and that. That really kind of brings in the dreamy part of, you know, what made all the girls swoon at the time, you know, like Blind Hope and, well, my first night alone without you. I remember I used to play that constantly. Well, I Am a Clown, I used to listen to back then. I, I really haven't heard it in quite a while. It, so it doesn't really, you know, I haven't really heard it lately. But, you know, like I lost my chance. Songs like that. I always, even back then, I remember they being my favorites. And it's yeah. kind of interesting that the sad ones would be my favorites, you know, mm. you know, I mean. Like I mentioned to you, it, has, it was an interesting point in our family's life because by that point, eh, you know, my parents had separated. I was born in Miami, Miami, Florida, and we lived in Hialeah, which was like a suburb of Miami till I was probably seven, you know, maybe the year I turned eight, you know, that's when they separated. And Hialeah, by the way, for history novice or whatever, that's where Casey and the Sunshine Band originated from so it's always like to connect that you know because I always they didn't really get together so a couple of years after we left but it's kind of highly on the map at the time you know <laughs> yep, yep. but they separated you know and then when we lived there it was a multi-generational home we had you know, my parents my mom's mother my grandmother and her, her brother who was older handicapped you know he was always either in a walker or a wheelchair you know and that was our family there but then once they separated, they decided my mom would move back here to Iowa. And Iowa, a Midwestern state, you know, in the middle of the, the country. You know, that's where both of them were from originally. They were both born and raised here. And so they decided that it would be smart for my mom to move here. And my dad would stay in Florida. And so we'll, so we're talking about 1,500 miles away about. He kind of kind of overnight went, he wasn't in the picture, you know, pretty much was, you know, I mentioned that in your book. And, and it was, it, it, my mom was real good. I mean, she went out of her way not to bad talk him or say anything in my presence. But a kid knows, you know, a kid overhears stuff, you know, it's not, you know, whether it's in the other room or whatever. So, you know, something's just not quite right with the picture. And at the time, again, this would be the same time that discovered the Partridge family and David Cassidy. And I'm sure a lot of that void, whatever void was there, whether I knew it at the time or thought about it at the time, I know some of my obsession for David was because my dad probably wasn't in the picture and whatever, it filled that void. As an adult, I've never really... I felt I never felt like marriage certainly doesn't have the appeal to me that maybe it would have if I had come from that situation. But I was basically from the age 
seven and a half, eight on raised by my mom and my grandma. So that was the home. That was the normal home for our life. And if you look at the Partridge family, there wasn't a father in that either. So maybe there was a, you know, some attachment to that. Did you have brothers and sisters? No, I was actually, I'm an only child. My mom did have a baby that passed away like about 12 years before I was born. Of course, the baby died on Mother's Day. She's always said Mother, Mother's Day was always kind of bittersweet for her. Because of that, she was, you know, she went on. You know, she was a very strong woman. I know when they separated, a lot of the, our family members, she told me this years later, didn't think she'd be able to make it on her own, you know, without my dad. And she, she was determined she was going to, you know, that just made her more determined to do it, get a job and be the head of the household. You know, and my grandma worked too. It was kind of interesting because both of them were very short. My mom was maybe a little like five three at the most. And my grandma was under five foot. She was like four foot something. Mm-hmm. And my grandma was like real slender. My mom was real heavy. So you had these two short women, one heavy, one logging this little seven-year-old kid around town, you know. <laughs> so I'm sure we were the sight because we ate out a lot. I mean, we, we probably had about three three dinners in, a week at home. And then and then we'd eat out the rest of the time because they both work. So who wants to cook at night, you know? So Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, we always cooked, you know, they did the meat and potatoes thing. And the rest of the week, we usually went, went out, you know, for the, oh, you know, yeah. you know, there were a couple of nights where I got to have frozen pizzas. So that was always nice. You know, I was definitely spoiled. I wasn't really a brat, although I could probably come up with a couple stories where I was. But generally speaking, even though we didn't have a lot of money, I always seemed to get what I wanted somehow. Somehow she would make that happen. You know, she was always thankful that if I liked something, I would always like it. She could always count on that. Well, it's kind of like David, you know, I liked him once, I'm going to like him the rest of my life. That's just kind of how it is. She knew she could always put something on layaway if I wanted it. And I still want it at Christmas time. I'm sure at that point, kind of have the same time. So I'm sure that attraction really kind of helped fill that void. You know, I've, I've said before that as an adult male, that gay male that being raised without a father, I never felt had anything to do with me being gay. However, I do feel it has a direct effect on why I was always attracted to older men. I, 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 I'm almost positive that. And let's face it, David was that first older man for many of us, you know, for me anyway. And I wasn't looking at him the same way I was looking at Batman when I was five. You yeah. know, I mean, it was, it was like, okay, it was more, this is, this is more like a crush type feel all the girls were crushing on him well this boy was too as a male fan growing up was it difficult to admit that you liked him that you liked his music yeah there were you certainly felt self-conscious about it definitely you know i mean it's like the teen magazine i would always look at them in the stores you know, and occasionally I would buy one, but I was always self-conscious that who's watching, who's, who's going to see me looking at these, you know, because, you know, these are meant for the girls. And here I am looking at this, you know, you know, and, and I know I, I had Susan Day and Maureen McCormick on my wall, but, you know, it, I, I was more interested in the David Casties and the Osmonds on my wall just as much, you know. Back then I didn't really, I just had a little small area on the wall that I put them on. Once I discovered Farah, the whole wall became posters, you know. <laughs> but during David's years, I, I was young enough or I just, somehow I didn't have access to him, you know, just what was in the magazines, the pinups and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it, you definitely feel that, you know, there was a girl, I remember the fourth grade, there was a girl who was at one of the other tables and she had the David Cassidy notebook. The, the spiral notebook. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, in th- I was like, oh, I, I wanted that so bad. You know, I saw him in the stores. 
I would look at them in the stores, but I wasn't brave enough to buy one, you know, because of how that stigmatism of, you know, it, it's not for you. It's not for the boys, you know. Yeah. My mom wouldn't did have a problem. I'm sure she would have, you know, she always, she bought me the other David Cassidy stuff, you know, like the color forms or whatever, the paper dolls, Partridge Family paper dolls. So, I mean, I don't think there'd be a problem there. It's just, I knew, you know, what your peers and what society accepts and or thinks is correct or not at the time. As a, as a, even as a little kid, you know that, you know, and you kind of go with the flow. You said just now that you were looking at older idols, if, if you like, older men to be your sort of mentor, to be a father figure for you. But mm-hmm. you didn't see David as a father figure. Did you see not- him as someone you wanted to be? Yeah, well, oh, most definitely, yes, definitely that. I mean, you play the records, and I pretend I was him. You know, I, you know, like I'm sure we all do. We lip sync, you know, whatever's in handy. A marker, marker, a pencil, whatever you'd use as a microphone, and you, you know, I mimic him all the time that way. You know, and one time. And this is where a little brattiness come out of me. Uh, some kids, we were playing. We were playing the Partridge Family. We were decided we wanted to play the Partridge Family. Okay, so everyone were lining up who was going to play who. And they wanted me to play Danny. Well, I was like, well, I'm not playing Danny. I, I'm going to be Keith. <laughs> I was determined I wanted to be Keith. And I wasn't going to play if I wasn't Keith. Now, mind you, we had another kid in the group who was perfectly suited to play Keith. You know, he, he even sang. He was a saying, I don't sing. Believe me, you don't want me to hear me sing. <laughs> he could sing and it made sense for him. And it really made sense for me, Danny, because I think I could pull that off better. But, you know, my obsession with David would not allow me not to be Keith. So I stormed off. And then, you know, one of the mothers kind of cooled things down and we played something else. But it's funny how that you know, memories stick with you. Did you see the character of uh, Reuben Kincaid as a father figure? Well... Maybe subconsciously. Um, I, I don't know if, I, you know, I, I probably so. Now that you're saying, you know, I think I always, you know, there was, you know, our, over here, it was always the Brady Bunch followed by the Partridge family. And I think maybe the dad on the, the Brady Bunch, I probably had that feeling for that maybe, you know, the father figure thing. But then when the Partridge family came on, it's like, okay, I think I'm more interested in a boyfriend here, not, not the father figure. <laughs> You know, know, I think that's kind of, and let's face it, David, especially when he went solo, I mean, he was a rock star. He wasn't just, you know, he was a rock star and he was like Mick Jagger. If, you know, Mick Jagger bathed or something, you know, poofed his hair or whatever, you know, he was, you know, so he was that. So that was, it's it's just kind of bigger than life, you know, and maybe you you do kind of wish you were that kind of want to be that you know now you yeah. mentioned earlier on about his songs being full of sadness did his music well, actually take you to a brighter place but were you always touched by the sadness in his songs i i always have been touched by those actually even even other artists later on as i got older you know needing little needing feeling or whatever but with him it was it was definitely when the Rock Me Baby album came out, my cousin Barb had actually gave me gave me that 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 year for Christmas. It's probably the first album that ever just blew me away. You know, as much as I played Cherish all the time in the Partridge Family albums, that one, it was something different. You know, it was a little more rock. The, the voice was a little deeper, you know, a little edgier. And every single song, I, I to this day, I still would put that as one the best albums ever or favorite i don't usually say best i say favorite but you know i put it up there with rumors you know Fleetwood mac rumors to me it's in that league 
it's, you know, every single song I just love. You know, there was a boom in them albums out between the solo albums and the Partridge Family albums. It was hard to keep up with them, you know, and I think like Crossword Puzzle and Notebook, somehow I got, I skipped over those and went right to Bulletin Board. Well, Bulletin Board fit perfectly as a follow-up to Rock Me Baby. I'm like, well, this is perfect, you know. So those other two albums, you know, I didn't get those till years later. And I always, even today, I listen to them. They're fun to listen to in that I can, certain songs you remember from a sh- an episode or something. And maybe, you know, I was listening to one the other day and I don't even think it's the right song, but it gave me the visual of that little Native American girl dancing in front of the stage when they're singing at that reservation. You know, the little girl, you know, so cute, you know. That was, and I don't even think it was the same song. I don't know. I can't, I'm not sure, but that's the visual I had. And those two albums, I can listen to them that way, but I, I just don't feel the albums as much as I do. Bulletin Board, that was another one like Rock Me Baby for me that I just do constantly. It was just a perfect follow-up for me. And I think that that evolution of sound kind of continued with that. Now, when Dreams came out, Dreams Are Nothing More Than Wishes, here in the States, you know, he was setting the rest of the world on fire at that point as a solo artist, you know, the, the concerts and stuff. Here in the States, radio wasn't playing. You know, they pretty much, you know, and I know, I'm sure it was the, the stigma of being associated with the Partridge family here in the States. That's kind of, you know, they didn't, they weren't playing at all. So I didn't even know since I probably didn't buy all, every magazine because I would only skim the, you know, secretly skim them in the, uh, the aisles. I didn't know that album came out, but we had, there was a store that was a block from us. And it was an odd store. It was a hodgepodge. It had new stuff. It had old stuff. It, I just, it was just kind of a weird generalized store. But they had records. Like every store back then had records. They always had a record department. And they just throw them there. They No order or whatever. You just had to flip through and hope you found something you want. Well, I was doing that one day. And there it was. Dreams are nothing. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I didn't even know it existed. Of course, I bought that one. Went home and just... I. I played it and looked at the pictures of the writing and all that kind of stuff. And I'll be honest, I was kind of taken aback by it, you know, that age because rock me baby is what I was, you know, and, and then that one, it was like, well, this is different than this is a much more, well, it's a much more mature. The material was more adult. I think is the thing, you know, Bali high may fever, even, you know, even the remake of summer days, which I put as one of my all time favorites was totally different and just kind of, I was kind of taken aback by it. Of course, Daydreamer is wonderful. And, and the singing is wonderful. It seems like his little higher pitch, you know, I mean, like the higher side of his voice, I think he used on that album. And it's I enjoy listening to it now. But I remember at that time being, wow. And this is the album that, you know, went number one overseas, you know. So, and, and, and it's great stuff. But it, like I said, it was just not what I was used to, which is the same thing with... Um, the Higher They Climb, which came out, that was, I had no problems. I'm not sure that one was, maybe because it was the first one from RCA. Maybe that's why it was so available here. And that one, what was interesting about that, where I was taken aback by the one I was, this was, was like, a, what's the word I want to use? I was, um, well, it was a shock. It was actually a shock to the system in a way okay. because of the visuals, the visual the album cover visual, the visual of the story that the album tells, you know, the rise and the fall. And you're like, well, this is the fall of my idol. That's in the back of the cover is literally David Cassidy, you know, fallen to earth. So that was a little rough on the system, you know, as a, as a fan, as a little young teen, early teen fan. I'm not even sure if I was a teenager, to be honest. Did those images alarm you? Well, yeah, they were, I think, yeah, a little. 
a little bit, you know, I mean, that's very strong imagery. Imagery. The music was very good. When I'm a rock and roll star, and I would listen to it all the time. A Common Thief was one I seemed to be elevated towards. Maybe the theatrics of it or whatever it was. But again, it fit right in with that cover, that back cover, that kind of you know, the dark side. But I thought, well, you know what? This is. It was almost like he was doing a musical exorcism of the previous four years. That's basically what that album represents. I think is exercising Keith Partridge, exercising the Teen Idol, the, the concerts, everything that he went through. I think he was like, okay, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm getting rid of that today with this album. And he did. I mean, I think he really succeeded in that regards. Because when you listen to the following album, it's like, okay, now he's having fun. You go from, all right, let's get rid of this. Let's get the, let's get the kinks out or whatever. And then home is where the heart is. He takes off and he has fun and it helps that they have all the pictures of them having fun. But I mean, you know, you can tell he's, he seems to be enjoying himself, making music he wants to do. And it is a great album. I do, you know, I don't know if my heart is in it as much as it was Rock Me Baby and Cherish because they were earlier. It, it is a highlight, I think, definitely a highlight of his career. And at that time, I think, oh... I don't know. You could just, it just seemed like he was doing what he enjoyed. Let's talk about the vocals, though, because that's, you know, and I don't mean to be thrown all over here, but his voice on those two albums. Mm-hmm. We're talking a whole different feel. You know, you get the, the early departures for him in the early albums. You got that whole dreamy kind of, you know, that really the, the deeper voice, the very like butter voice. And then with, <laughs> with these, much grittier. Now it's it it could be on purpose that that's he wanted to go over that, but I mean when I was listening to it back then, even back then, I kept thinking I wondered I kept thinking did he damage his voice? That's where I was always wondered because he had gone well, all those tours and the workload that he had prior to that he had to have been worn down at some point. And I kind of feel like the grittiness in his voice kind of I kind of felt like maybe that that was a result of all the the concert touring that he did. That's why. I thought at the time I thought well he, he, he just it seems rougher it's rougher it's edgier you know and again he might just say I want to sing like this and that's how but but to me that's what it, it sounded like and again if you go 10 years later when he comes out with romance I mean it is refreshed and new and it doesn't sound it doesn't have that yes that rough sound you know the 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 horse kind of sound I don't want to be uncomplimentary but that's how I felt it sounded like even yeah. though the music's fun and I listen to it and, you know I still enjoy it Do you You think that had he been a solo artist and not had the baggage of Keith Partridge, he would have perhaps been a bigger international star than he even was? Well, I think, uh, well, yes, I think he would have been in the United States. And I think that would have set the tone. Internationally, this is from the American view, you know, it seems like you guys appreciate him a lot more as a solo artist than what Americans did. They weren't willing to give up the Keith Partridge thing, or they, you know, or at least the powers that be. So yes, I'm sure. But but then again, if it wasn't for Keith Partridge, he probably might have. He would have been probably an actor. He might have stayed in the acting and not even sung. Who knows if he would have sung or not? Because he was certainly on the road to being, you know, a well-regarded actor at that point. And I think it's interesting after the dreams are nothing more than wishes. You know, I never knew about here in America. I never even heard of the getting it in the streets until probably 86, probably when I heard of that album for the first time, because I'd never knew it existed from here. I thought it was interesting. And I always wondered myself if, because I don't remember him ever saying this, but when his father passed away and he talked about how devastated he was, 
And, and I noticed then right after that, he goes into acting. And I always kind of wondered if going into acting was a way to maybe connect with his father, who he no longer had a chance to connect to. Mm. And felt that was kind of the case. You know, I kind of wondered anyway. I speculated as a fan, you know, because I don't recall him ever actually. I know he talked about how devastated he was, but I don't remember him actually saying that. But th- when I watch this, when I look at his career, it seems like it all lines up that way, yes. you know, because he goes more into theater and stuff in acting, stuff that is you know, his father did. And I, I just wondered, I always wondered, I speculated, I should say, you know, it's like when he did the yeah. police story thing, I never knew that either. And I'm like, okay, now how is this possible? Now get me. And I know I, I, I should slap myself because mm. I used to read TV Guide religiously. TV Guide was like my mag. I could tell you, you wouldn't know what was on a certain time. I could tell you what was on a certain time. But you know, police story was never on my radar. I never watched it. I wasn't familiar with it. I knew what it was, but I think I glossed. I always glossed over it. And I'm like, how in the world all these years, how did I gloss over that? Because mm. usually if there's something to David Cassidy, I usually I elevate towards it, yeah. you know, but somehow police story was enough of a block that I didn't quite get that, you know, I wish I would have known that. And, you know. Do you think that David was underappreciated as an artist and especially as a songwriter? Certainly. I mean, yes, here in America, most definitely. Most definitely. It seems, I'm not sure I can put it into words correctly, but again, they see him as a teen idol and rightfully so. You know, when Romance came out, I think he, he certainly got the attention overseas. I was always shocked that that was never released here. It, again, again, it's the, that appreciation overseas that he never got here. The only reason I knew about The Last Kiss was Casey Kasem here in his radio countdown show every week, you know, I'd be at work listening to it. And when he get to the top 10, he would do a little snippet of the top 10 songs in the UK. And David Cassidy appears with the last kiss, you know, and I'm like, whoa, what, what, what? I was excited that he was in the top 10, you know, but I'm like, how do I get my hands on this? Well, we had a gold buying magazine here that was like a, like kind of like eBay today, but in a magazine form, yeah. you know, everyone that sold some record related stuff in ports or whatever, put their ads in there. So I was always able, I was able to get romance and the live album that came after that, you know, the greatest hits live that came after that. It was only through that, that I, cause it never was released here, but now that live album. And that's where I think, I think the rest of his career was really kind of dominated by the success he had live. There's that period between 75 and 85 where I think he really, and, and again, this is my opinion, I just think he almost like he's floating, but you know, he was just kind of wanting, but then when Romance came out, it was like a little more of a focused thing. The album was a success overseas. I think the live performances that, that, that led up to that were successful over there and then put on vinyl, I think that really set the tone for the rest of his career. Because whenever he had the most success, it was when he was either on stage in front of an audience relating to that audience, that audience relating to him back and forth there in live concerts in Broadway and certainly the success he had in Vegas and then touring. You know, he'd always record. There would be an album every so often for one reason or another, you know, there'd be some success, but not what you'd would hope and but then every time he went live those were that was a success and I think that's really where he made the connection for the rest of it I think that really set the tone for his successes career-wise for the rest of his life was as a live performer rather than necessarily a recording artist or you know an actor other than stage and again the singing when he's on stage is completely different he sings you know you've got that early dreamy you got the rock and roll kind of gritty and then you got his stage when he's on stage 
it's a completely different type of singing that he does. I'm sure that's on purpose, but it's it's kind of interesting just to listen to the the different tones and mannerisms that he uses. What are your thoughts on his live album when he was touring over here? Oh, Where well, do you rate that? Because a lot of people say it's up there with Frampton. I always enjoyed that. Even back then, I was thrilled to get that and listen, you know, all the screaming girls and... <laughs> The songs themselves, you know, I really, you know, I, I really enjoy that. And I was always disappointed in the packaging. I didn't think they really, in America, I don't know how they packaged it overseas, but here in America, it was just a, nothing to it. It was just a front and back cover and then sleeve. I mean, that definitely deserved a, a gatefold. It would have been nice maybe even a two record set, but. Well, it should have been a double. Right. There yeah. was so much material that they could have put out. And this is why so many people now are crying out for a complete deluxe box set of the unreleased studio recordings, but also the unreleased live recordings. Both. Either yeah, way, both. it would be nice. Just getting the right powers to be the I do know. it. Listen you know. to us, people. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although you still enjoy Cherish and Rock Me Baby, have you got an appreciation of his work completely across the board? Definitely. You know, there's a couple albums that I'm not as familiar with, even though I bought them. One was on cassette because cassette was real popular at the time. And so I'm really, that was the venue used to be. To this day, um, No Bridge I Wouldn't Cross is among my favorite. I put it in my top five. I love that album. I love the, el- I love the song. The album that came from, but there was one where he did some remakes. He did a reversion of I Think I Love You. I thought his remake of that was really great. He did a few Partridge families, but they were new versions and they were perfectly suited for that time. So it would have been nice if that had gotten a little more airplay because it definitely, you know, I remember one reviewer even made a comment if it had been recorded by some other artists, it would have been a huge hit. But since it was David Cassidy, that was the reason, you know, it was obvious. It's an interesting observation that you have over there, Dale, because over here, he didn't come really with any Partridge family baggage. Mm -hmm. He came as himself. Well, you see, and I think I'm kind of halfway between my American cohorts and you guys, because, you know, I went right from Sound Magazine to Cherish. You know, there wasn't that whole year of the Partridge family for me, you know, so I saw I saw the difference. I felt the difference between the Partridge Family song and the David Cassidy recordings. Even at the time, I, you know, I liked both. You know, I liked it all vocally. But yeah, yeah, it's inter- interesting how that worked out. In the story that you shared in Cherish, you suggested that you could easily relate to David's relationship with his father because of the distant relationship you had with yours. You met your father um, at a family funeral and he actually asked you if you still like David Cassidy. I just wonder mm-hmm. if you can explain how much that meant to you. It meant the world to me. It was interesting, you know, and I've thought about since then, I, I thought, well, wait a second, how did he even remember? How did he know I liked David Cassidy? Overnight, I went from having a father to not having a father. So it was like having a father that pass, passes away. In hindsight, I wondered, well, how, and then I remember one year, obviously it was through my mother that he knew, because I remember one year uh, I got the David Cassidy guitar for Christmas and I'm thinking, that's right. That was from him. So that's how he would, he would know that I liked David Cassidy or that I liked, I used to like David Cassidy. So that's why he was asking me. And so, you know, I think, okay, it's funny how you remember things late after the fact. Cause then I always wonder, I wonder like, so every time he saw David Cassidy, that did he think of me over the years? Because after that funeral, when we have a, had our little our little visit, a little walk, I I saw him maybe twice after that over the next 
two years, maybe briefly. And I mean, so briefly, I remember being in a car with him and my mom once and then something else. But it's, it's to the point where it, the memory isn't really, it's so foggy. It was so quick, yeah, yeah. you know. So the, the funeral one was very, very vivid. Closest thing I ever came to seeing my father again was, and I've shared this with you, I'll, I'll, I'll tell it here, is in a dream. You know, I, in, the, in, the, in the mid-90s, I think early to mid-90s is when it was, 1990s. And in the dream, he was on his deathbed. And he was asking me for forgiveness for abandoning us when I was so young. And I remember telling him that for whatever reason, his life had to take a turn. And that turn just didn't include us. I said, I never, I never felt like I had a bad father, you know, from the perspective of a five-year-old, which is the perspective I have as a father. He was a great father. I just didn't have one for as long as most people do. And that seemed to he was at peace. That made him happy. That, that seemed to me, he was at peace. And then the, I woke up from the dream and I remember, I remember just being so like, what just happened? What was, I mean, it was so real. I mean, it, it was the real, and mind you, I hadn't thought about my father in years. I was an adult. I was working. I was paying bills. I was partying on the weekends. I hadn't thought about, he wasn't in my conscious for, for decades. And shortly after that, my mom got a letter. My dad had passed away and that she was going to start collecting from his punch pension. The date of his death lined up right when I had that dream. And I remember thinking, there's no coincidence there. I'm not a religious person. I never have been, but I've always believed in the afterlife. I just do. I, if you, I don't see how you can live life and not believe in the afterlife. I think if, and if you certainly if you've ever experienced the death of a person, a loved one, you know, like in that case, it was a dream, but it was pretty real dream, you know, but when my mom passed away, it was, you couldn't have asked for perfect, you know, I mean, it was, it was in a hospice. She had cancer. She was lucky. She didn't have a lot of pain till that very last end. And, you know, it was me and my Bruce was there and I had a couple of aunts and cousins and a couple of my mom's oldest friends were all there at the bedside. And I remember at one point I was talking to my aunt and Bruce nudges me because something was going on with my mom, you know, and the nurse kept coming in and going back out and she, she was getting ready to leave, I guess. I remember I, I stood up, I, I kissed her on the forehead and I said, I love you. She smiled and she was gone. You know, something's going on. There's something on the other side. You see that person actually leave their body and with a smile, you know, I've always wondered if she met her baby on the other side. Undoubtedly. I mean, at that same time when she's, you know, when she's mild, I mean, it was, but you, you can't go through something like that and not believe whether you're religious or not. You, you, you have, to, I don't know how, I, well, I can't anyway. I know there's more out there. You know, with, with my father, it was, I kind of had closure there in that dream. You did see him in concert in 2002, didn't you? But what happens when someone you've idolized all your life stands there before you well it's 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 pretty incredible actually i mean and i tell you the story about how i got to know that he was even going to be in concert because the concert was four hours away from here i worked for the united states postal service and i sort the mail by machine well we, we sort the machine it comes in trays and we pretty much see the top of the mail and we might see this the the stamp but, you know, we, we lift it up and put it in the machine and we empty it that way. So we rarely see the front of a, a piece of mail. Oh, one day I'm, I'm sorting the mail and I don't can't remember. I think I'm taking it out of the mail. A piece of mail is kind of sticking up a little bit. 
Well, so it catches my attention. I said, well, what's this? I pull it out. Well, right there is David Cassidy's picture on the cover. You know, it's a single piece of mail advertising. I'm like, well, what's this? Advertising his concert that's coming up in Aurora, Illinois, the Paramount Theater in Aurora, Illinois. It might have been for the next year. It might have been their schedule for the year or whatever. So, of course, right away, I write down all the information that's on there, phone number or whatever. And it's the first time I saw Bruce or talked to Bruce, I said, well, I know what I want for my birthday. <laughs> I want to see David Cassidy in concert. Okay. And Bruce is good at buying tickets. Me, I'll buy a ticket. You know, I'll be like, it'll be, if it's like a big arena or whatever, I'll buy a ticket and he'll be like, well, that's not a very good seat. Where'd you get that? So he'll take it. He'll go get a better seat somehow. I'm like, so he was, he was able to get one. You know, I don't know. I, 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 certainly I want to say it's fourth row, but the way it was, it seems a lot closer because I think the way that the role set, they kind of curved around the stage maybe. So by the time we were at the end, so by the time it got to us, it curved closer to the stage. So I, I don't remember anyone being in front of me. But again, you know, there could have been people. I don't remember people being in front of me. There certainly wasn't anybody on the side. I think I was on the last person in that row. Yeah, but it's very exciting. I mean, because, you know, you, that, that kid in you is coming out, even though you're 40, whatever years. I don't even know how old I was at the time, but 2002. But anyway, yeah, it was very exciting. You know, when he does, I'll meet you halfway. And of course, all the girls, the women, I'm going to say girls. So all the women go up to the stage, you know, and it, 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 but there was a point where he does summer days. He started summer days and I'm like, I don't know what, I was just so excited. I was like, I, I love that song. I love that song, you know? And, and he started on the other side of the stage and then worked his way over. And then he was in front of us. And I don't know. I just felt the need to stand up. I stood up, you know, I was the only one, nobody around us, you know, we're standing up. They're all sitting down, but here I was. And I, I kind of fingered number one, you know, put my hand out number one to him, you know, and made the eye contact and all that. And, he acknowledged it, you know, he kind of kind of nodded and winked or whatever, and, 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 and then continued on with this song, and then moved on to the other, and I died, and then I sat down, you know, once he walked away, once he made that acknowledgement, I thought, okay, well, I better sit down now, you know, <laughs> everybody else is, and I, I often wonder what look he was seeing in my face, <laughs> you know, I can, I, a few years later, let me, let me bring you this story, because I kind of wonder if it's in tune, um, uh, about four years later, they did a, there was a comic convention I went to and they were celebrating the 40th anniversary of the old Batman TV show. Okay. So all the cat living cast members were there. They had, you know, Adam Westbert Ward, uh, Julie Newmar was there, Lee Merriweather, Yvonne Craig. They were all there signing autographs. And I was in line. I was halfway in line in the middle of the line to see Adam West. Cause I had a poster for them to sign. I'm in the middle of this and I'm thinking to myself, Oh my God, am I going to cry? I actually was getting emotional, you know? And I thought, no. Okay. Get yourself together. This is crazy. But even though I was imagining that five-year-old enjoying Batman as a kid and I got my composure. Okay. And that was fine. I went through everything fine, but then they had a Batmobile there. They had a replica of the original Batmobile and you could have your picture taken sitting in it. So, and then they give you an eight by 10 or whatever. size. it was about an eight by 10. Yes. And so I, I go in there and she kept saying, smile, now smile. And I said, okay, I'm smiling. Well, she gave me the picture. I'm looking at it. I'm like, I could have swore I was smiling, but I look so sad. I look so sad. I'm like, I look like I'm going to cry. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was that happy, I guess. And I wonder, now, did I look that way for David? You know, <laughs> I wonder if he's seen this, you know, <laughs> but, but um, definitely the eight, 10 year old inside me definitely came to life on that yeah. night. You know, it was interesting the next day we, we, Bruce and I, we, well, it was four hours away, but Bruce lived halfway between there and 
here at that time. So I just, we went from his house and then his family is just like a half hour from there. So we just stayed at his mother's. But the next day we went to eat with his sister and we were talking about how great the concert was, you know, and I remember thinking, I was so surprised at how strong his voice was and how much it sounded like the old recordings that, I, you know, like Rock Me Baby. And it, it was the Rock Me tour, the Rock Me Baby tour. So, I mean, it made sense, that, but I was surprised at how much he sounded like the recordings. I was kind of expecting, you know, the, the stage voice. But then his sister was saying, well, you know, she knew, I think I love you. And she was like, well, did he have any other hits? You know, and we're like, oh, my God. And so we started listening to all these songs, you know, like I'll Meet You Halfway and Doesn't Somebody Want to Be One and Cherish. And as we were naming these, she was like, oh, my God, I know every one of those songs. So, you know, it's, I think a lot of people are like that. They, they think of I Think I Love You. And then it's only when you mention the other songs that immediately, I mean, immediately she knew every single song that we were listening that we listened that he sung, you know? So I think that's kind of interesting. I thought that was interesting at the time, but at the concert, well, first of all, the theater was beautiful. He even made a comment about how beautiful the theater was. He, it was all bejeweled, you know, gold ceiling. I mean, they really kept it up. It was like an old time theater that they really kept up nice. They, well, they had a meet and greet afterwards that we didn't know about. The, there was a girl next to Bruce who had some stuff she was going to have some signed. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know there was a meet and greet. You know, I think it was like an extra $50 or something per person or whatever, whatever it was. Yeah. And but I remember afterwards, you know, we're sitting there, the concert's over and everyone's leaving. And, you know, there's people over there with flashlights kind of flash. We kind of, kind of got my attention, you know, and I thought I won. I was thinking in hindsight, I wish I would have gone over and said, you know, I didn't want to. Like now, say, are you talking to me? You know, I thought for there's probably someone behind me there. They're trying to get the attention of, you know, I said, I wish in hindsight, I would have been a little braver and gone up to him and said, oh, is there any way we can get into that? You know, yes. you know, I knew I didn't have the money on me. So I thought, well, I don't know. Well, that's why I think that's kind of what kept me from doing it, you know, but in hindsight, I wish I wouldn't brave enough just to say, well, see if I could have snuck my way back in there somehow through the guards, you know, but with me, you know, like, but the concert itself was it was enough. I'd seen him twice in the 1970s over here at Wembley and at White City. And mm. then I didn't see him again until 2002, the same oh. year oh. you did. Wow. And, yeah. And we sat in the balcony. Just remember, as soon as he bounced onto the stage, because there, like you, there was my 13, 14-year-old self back mm -hmm in that yeah. time warp it does take you there yeah and it's an, it was an overwhelming moment to see him and he just looked so small he looked tiny yeah yeah <laughs> and you know he's, he's he, everyone knew he's short you know but yeah. in person even you know you think wow and on tv and they're bigger than life you yeah, know absolutely. as celebrities they're bigger than life you know you know it's like tom cruise look at how short he is height doesn't matter in hollywood no. <laughs> it's just the illusion it's the illusion it <laughs> i've loved hearing your observations and your your analysis of everything but can you analyze from a male perspective the effect david had on people's lives i would be interested to hear you know as a gay male i don't think i'm a whole lot different than the the females out there to be honest i think that part of me you know other than you try you kind of hide it i mean i can talk to you about david cassidy all day if we wanted to different song or whatever but you know you go out to other people it's like okay i don't want to i don't want to bore them or i don't want to push it i would like to hear more musicians who went on because of just watching the partridge family i think so many of them are out there that haven't said something 
because maybe they don't realize it, you know, because I think a lot of times when you're a child, that experience of watching like the Partridge family or whatever is what pushed a lot of people in, in the back of their mind, might have been their subconscious, but that's what they wanted to be. And I wonder how many of them realize that's that maybe is where it started. You know, it's no different than I'm sure back in the 50s, you know, with Ozzie and Harriet in Rick Nelson, Ricky Nelson. You know, I'm sure there's a, so many people that were inspired to become rock stars because of that that teen idol, you know, but they don't necessarily or seeing him on TV on the show. They don't think of it. And same with I think that's a lot of guys out there probably were like that. I'm sure a lot of guys, I think a lot of them were jealous. You know, I know I have a cousin that would always joke about, you know, David Cassidy like a girl or something, you know, just kind of, and then you mm-hmm. kind of like, okay, whatever, back up, you know. When I did an interview recently with uh, Richie Furet, he said his influence to become a rock star came from the Aussie and Harriet show. Oh, well, <laughs> and that makes sense. Yeah. With, with Ricky Nelson standing over a cot and singing bebop baby and he said i want some of that this is where you know when you talk about teen idols and the whole uh rock and roll hall of fame you know they have rick nelson in there you know but the big this is an oversight and a mistake i think they are making is by overlooking teen idols in my opinion they should have a whole wing just dedicated to teen idols because here's the thing rock and roll you know started It's teen idols that starts and and it's teen idols that get everyone into music. I don't care what your genre ends up being. You know, you may be a rock and roll star, but it's that teen idol, whether it's David Cassidy or Justin Bieber now, you know, the kids that are listening to the the teen idols now, they're going to, they may move on to do something else, but it's the teen idols that got their interest. They're the ones that pushed them in that direction that they may not have ever been pushed if they hadn't experienced listening to that music. David's music introduced you to other genres. Oh, most definitely, definitely. You know, like it wasn't shortly after I discovered him that I did start listening to radio and listening to other. I've always been, so I always like pop music. I always say I like any kind of music as long as it's, if it's commercial enough. I've always, I like pop music. I like commercial music. So if it's commercial enough, I'm going to like it. It could be heavy metal. It could be, it could be classic. It could be whatever you want, country. If it's commercial enough, I'm going to like it. David being the ultimate pop artist of his time, one of them certainly, you know, that that's where that lends to that. He's, he was an introduction. He was an introduction. For sure. I mean, granted, I had my parents' music, and I still love that music. You know, Glenn Campbell still. You know, I'd probably put him right behind. You know, Michael Jackson, David Cassidy, and Elton John as my all-time favorites. But now with David, well, with the whole Teen Idol thing, you know, if we're, you know, we're talking legacy. You know, I know we bring up the whole legacy thing. I think his legacy is multi-tiered. It's, there's different levels to it. You know, on the surface, it's definitely the David Cassidy Teen Idol. That's always going to be that's always going to be front and center because if you go back to 1970 when he first came on the scene prior to that there were many teen idols i mean there are many many teen idols going all the way back as far as you want to go but with david something happened something was different merchandising is a big part of this because when he came on the scene he became the prototype for every teen idol after that with all the merchandising and primarily that you know because there were some before but that really went into overdrive. He became the prototype for every teen idol from his contemporaries, like Donnie, like Donnie Osmond, who, let's, to be fair, he ran parallel with David during those years. I mean, if David had his 
face on a t-shirt. Donnie Osmond has his face on t-shirt too. I mean, it just kind of went that way. But Donnie, you know, thanks to Marie, he was able to stretch that teen idol thing even longer, you know, because once the solo stuff wasn't going, well, he had the duet, you know, they had a whole new career. David still became the example of that, the example, whether it's throughout the years, whether it's the Bay City Rollers, Leif Garrett, New Kids on the Block, Britney Spears, Justin Bieber, every one of them, for better or worse, owes a gratitude to David Cassidy for how what's making the money for them or for somebody getting them they're getting their face out there, you know, because that's the machinery that started there. Like if you're doing a book, let's say, or, or even an essay on the history of teen idols, you're going to have pre-David Cassidy and you're going to have post-David Cassidy. That's just kind of where the line is. You know, it's, it's just it's right there. It's not going to change. Now, I will say, I do kind of think with Justin Bieber, I think maybe the baton may finally have been pushed, you know, since he was the first one to come out of strictly the internet and be able to go worldwide instantly. Who knows? Time will tell. But he may be the next person that people say, okay, well, this guy's a teen idol, just like like, like Justin Bieber was. Whereas before they always mentioned David Casty. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out, you know, over time. But for the last 50 years, it's been David Cassidy. That's one angle. The other one, which we've talked about also, is the live performer. I think that's the other part of his legacy. If you just take that first four years, touring, the mass hysteria, the stadiums that he's filling out. But what he was doing, very few people were doing, certainly not individuals. You had to be either, you had to be the Rolling Stones, you had to be the Who, back then, or you had to be multiple groups to get that kind of crowd. Now, Elton John would be doing it during David's era, but David was doing it first. And by the middle of the 70s, everyone was doing it. I mean, by, by, the, by 1975, 76, you weren't popular unless you could fill a stadium. You know, if you can fill an arena, you know, and I think that does tend to get lost with David Cassidy. It might get mentioned, but I don't think it's in the forefront. He was doing it at a time you know, when other people really weren't doing it, you know, you might not certainly not individuals, you could see Elvis doing it. And you could see Elton John in the second half of David burst of fame, you could see Elton John doing it. But very few other people. But here's the thing, the fact that David's crowds were all teenage girls had a lot to do with that, I think I it was easy to dismiss it, not maybe consider it as my first thought was that well, it's a little sexist, if you ask me, but then at the same time, I think it's more of an age thing. Because if you look at Kiss, they had teenage boys in their audience and they couldn't get the credibility. You know, look how long it took them to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so I think it has more to do with the fact that if they were 20 some year old girls, it probably would have been a different thing. But since they were teenage girls, it was easy to dismiss it and say, okay, well, that's not quite as important as we don't need to acknowledge that as serious. You know, I think a lesser artist would not have survived that first five years. That first five years, there's that fame, that, that intense and the schedule that he went through. A lesser artist would not have survived that. It would have been a lot uglier. I think he had a survival, survivor instinct or the willing, you know, you just kind of go on. And you always go on no matter what. You just keep going on. Mm. You know, and even in interviews, I remember one time he made the comment, you know, money wasn't something he ever worried about because there's always a way to make money. He could always go on tour because he knew we would show up. Do you think David is going to eventually get the credibility from the wider public that his music deserves? Well, I don't I, I don't know. But hopefully, I think it's great that everything's out there. 
you know, I thought it was great back in the, the era of CDs, you know, before everything went digital. I thought it was great that every Partridge Family and every David Cassidy album was available. You know, uh, that kind of there was a point where I was kind of surprised that even the lesser popular ones were still available on DVD or CD. I mean, so and with the digital era, it's always going to be available. It's going to be out there all the. So that's kind of nice to know. The other layer of the legacy has to do with I Think I Love You. I don't think that song can be underestimated. Or Sirius XM Radio this past year did a countdown of 700, the top 700 songs of the 70s. And that song came in at 27. This is, I think it was 26 or 27 out of 700 songs. Now, this is this was voted on by fans, people who read, who listen to Sirius XM Radio. Okay, 50 years later, this song is 27. I mean, that's pretty impressive out of 700 songs. So I think I think both Tony Romeo and David Cassidy are going to live on forever because of that one song. 50 years from now, it's an iconic piece of the 70s and it's going to remain that way. And I think 50 years from now, they'll still be playing it. And people will probably say to themselves, well, who's this Partridge Family guy? You know, and they'll have your book. And the books are going to be around forever. So they can always research as far as the, the personal legacy, the connection with fans. Your book is perfect for that. And I think that's a big part of his legacy anyway. And to have it in a volume is, is yeah. wonderful for future oh, generations. You know, I've always thought, I've, I've thought, you know, I should buy a book and send it to the library. So our local library has it, you know, <laughs> so, so we'll, we'll see. Last time I was in there, they didn't have very many books. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> digital, but they did have some, you know, so I thought, well, that, that would be a nice, it would show up nice pink color, you know, so <laughs> get people's attention. Tell me, Dale, if someone comes up to you and says, who is this David Cassidy character? What's he done? What are you going to say to them? How are you going to educate them as to what David Cassidy's legacy is and what he gave the world of music? Well, first, I would tell him he's one of the greatest teen idols of all time. You know, I think if you want to put Ricky Nelson above him, I'll, I'll go. For, I'll let you do that. But that's probably the only one I'm going to allow you to put above him. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you can make an argument. You know, that's fine. I'll, I'll uh, but I'm, I'm, you're probably not going to sell me. You can say Frank Sinatra, but I'm saying, yeah. Well, I'm not going to put him in the teen idol category, even though he was a teen idol. But I'm not going to put him in there. Okay, but not rock era, not the rock era anyway. I would start there, and then just well, I would just go through his career. I would just say, you know, he had it. He was an he just grabbed your attention early on. He was one who could connect with the audience. He was able to connect with the audience like very few people have, you know, or have continued to. I think that was a big part of his who he was, yeah. you know, as an entertainer. I would I would point out certain albums. You know, I mean, usually if you're if you're introducing somebody to, to someone like that, you'd, you'd best to start with a greatest hits, a greatest hits package. You can put it together yourself. You know, years ago, I remember I made a cassette tape and I made a cassette tape of the best of the Partridge Family, David Cassidy or whatever, you know, and I basically made it for myself and a friend. But then I gave it to a couple other people, too. And I remember the time I, I did not include Echo Valley. 26809 because the one friend well get now now uh, hear me here the friend who the main friend that i was giving it to i remember years ago and this was back in the 80s i had a part of the family's grace cd that we would play at work a cassette it was a cassette take back then and i remember him saying oh i don't really care for that echo valley song i remember that in the back of my head it stuck in the back of my head how can you not like that you know because that's like one of the main partridge family songs you know so i did not put it on there i always felt it needed to be on there I did put Blind Hope on instead because I really love that song. So, but, but yeah, I was, as I said, I didn't put that on there for you. And he didn't even remember saying it. So, <laughs> you know, so I could have put it on there. He might've loved it now, but I would start with like a greatest hits thing. And then I would point out different albums. Like I said, No Bridge, I wouldn't, I would probably make sure they 
saw the video for that, if nothing else, because I love that video. Yeah. And it's a different sound. Yeah, that, that song was uh, co-written by Lulu. Oh, was it? Oh, I did not know that. Lulu and her, her brother. Oh, I knew it was a female writer, but that I didn't yeah. know that. What do you consider his best work? It, it is really hard to, to top Sound Magazine. Um, when I talk about my favorite songs it's one of those nights yes love is always number one on my list there's there's nothing i would have that people listen to that record they hear anything else because i just think it's the perfect vocally perfect song yeah. and it, it always reminds me of a jimmy webb song i've always every time i hear it i think that sounds like something jimmy webb would you know glenn campbell would record but he would you know right whether anyone else thinks that or not that's what i and then i woke up in love this morning and summer days are always my second my next two now those two could change and i say this because every time I, i'm on i have spotify so i, I in my car I always listen to spotify yeah. and if i'm playing sound magazine i always start with the very last song because i know i won't be in the car very long <laughs> and i just love that song and uh, david co wrote that what, what was it um love is all that i ever needed I can never get enough of that song. So I'm trying to wonder if maybe I like that one better. <laughs> but I always start with that so that I'll be sure to hear that. And then I let the album go or I may skip here and yes. there, whatever. But 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 it is, it's a great example of the Partridge family. Okay. Then I would, of course, Rock Me Baby and Cherish. Rock Me Baby is the one that affected me the most at the time. But Cherish is so well done. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost lush. It's just, it's just, the songs are so good on it. Even Ricky's tune. I listen to Ricky's tune. I think, well, this needs to be acoustic. They need to do this in acoustic only. You know, just well, he did. Did he? Oh, did he? he okay. Did. Well, you two that. One, it's one of these songs that just have disappeared, and oh, wow. that's the sort of quality products that we need. That's when... part of the evolution of his voice of him. Yeah. Well, in that song, you can listen to it, and like I said, one day I was listening to it and. I was almost listening to it as an acoustic. And I'm like, oh, no, I can hear all the other instruments. But I wasn't hearing the instruments. I was just hearing his yeah. voice and the guitar. You know, his voice basically is really all I was hearing, you yeah. know. And I thought, well, wow. And that's what made me think, oh, yeah, this needs to be acoustic, yeah. you know. But, well, it, it's but, interesting that when I when I did a podcast with John Baylor last year, he said that David never thought he had that great a voice. See, and I, I, I don't get that. I, you know, I don't. I, 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 we would get it, of course. You know, but I. I, I suppose if you're, it's that self-conscious. You know, the money. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not good enough. But no, vocally. I mean, if you go in early '70s, you're not going to mistake him for anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, his his voice is as distinctive as Neil Diamond's or John Denver. Mm-hmm. You, you know who that person is, and his is the same way. The world loved him. You, you kind of have to think. Hope he knows it now. You oh, know. You know. Oh, I have no problem. You, yeah. That's got to make you feel good, just knowing that. I'd like to think that he does know. I believe in, it. I do. In, in much the same way that your parents will be as proud of you today. Yeah. <laughs> and see everything that you have achieved. You hope so. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It's been a fascinating couple. Well, of days. I've I've, en- I've enjoyed this. Well, thank you for inviting me. Oh. I always enjoy your shows. I always enjoy them. If you have enjoyed today's show, you can catch up with all episodes since August 2020 with your preferred podcast provider. Review, rate and subscribe for free so you will be among the first to know when new episodes are released. You can read more of Dale's story in my book Cherish, David Cassidy, A Legacy of Love, available from Amazon and all major bookstores. Until we connect again...